Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. I'm continuing on from last week's talk, and we're in a series called Witness. And the question I want to answer today is, how do we live as a redemptive presence in a society and culture that is built on consumerism? How do we live as a redemptive presence in a society and culture that's built on consumerism? And consumerism is society's obsession with the acquisition of goods. And last week we talked a lot about this, so I'm not going to review it all. But um, consumerism is, uh, uh, is more than just the process of acquiring those goods and buying stuff. At the heart of consumerism is actually the distance that somebody travels from not having something to acquiring that 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 something, and that distance is what we call shopping. Shopping is the heart of consumerism, and consumerism is built on scarcity, and scarcity, we'll go through the notes, Um, scarcity is the deep belief that no matter how much we have, it's not enough. Scarcity is the deep belief that no matter how much we have, it's not enough, and so consumerism is what our society and culture has been built on since the Great Depression and World War II. There's actually a quote from a historian that talked about this. It said this. It said um, that the good purchaser devoted to more, newer, and better was a good citizen in the United States. So we built, um, out of the Great Depression and World War II, we needed to jumpstart our economy. So we built this idea that to be a good citizen was to be uh, devoted to more, new, and better. So consumerism has driven the U.S. for quite some time. So it's also, um, here are a couple of statistics I just want to give you that will help us. Top 20% of the world's population consumes 86% of the world's goods. So there's a fact, science has, has said that the natural resources of our world will actually sustain its population, um, but the problem is where the distribution lies. And so if 20% consume 86%, do you think the world has a problem? Yes, the answer is yes. So the United States, here's the next one. The U.S. Uh, makes up 6% of the world's population, but consumes anywhere from 40 to 50% of its resources. We are consuming 40 to 50% of the world's resources as 6% of the population. A couple more stats because I want to show you um, the, the challenge of consumerism. Some reports indicate we consume twice as many material goods today as we did 50 years ago. We consume twice as many material goods. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods, basically items that they're going to throw away. I love this. This is a a fascinating statistic. Americans spend more on trash bags than half the world does on all of its goods combined. We will spend, on average, in the United States alone, $450 billion on Christmas. Why are we talking about this? Because we are in the consumer moment. Every year, the cycle continues. And what's fascinating about Christmas is that we spend all this money at Christmas, but two out of three of us We'll go into debt this Christmas just to afford Christmas. What does that say about the church? And I talked about this last week when when Jesus was born as a poor refugee immigrant who becomes a day laborer, homeless man wandering with nothing, no possessions really. What does it say as we celebrate his birth when he's born into a, a barn and is placed in a feeding trough? What does that say about American Christianity? 
if we consume $450 billion worth of stuff at Christmas time, and we're gonna go, two out of three of us will go into debt to afford it. Is that eye-opening? Is it shocking? And again, this isn't to lay down guilt. It's just to expose what's underneath the heart of our society and culture. Every advertisement has a simple formula that basically they're saying, you are not enough. And you plus whatever product that they're trying to sell will equal happiness. And at the end of the day, that's what consumerism feeds on. Consumerism feeds on our deepest desires um, to, for wholeness, happiness, and joy. Consumerism feeds on our deepest desires that's found within our soul that we want to be happy, we want to have meaningful life, we want to experience joy and purpose. And consumerism feeds off that void, but it never fully satisfies, ever it's built on this cycle of acquiring more and pursuing more. And so you get the iPhone, the latest iPhone, which is the newest iPhone, and it feels really good. But within a short period of time, exactly one year, there is a newer iPhone. And that new perfect iPhone is now out of date. Because that's what drives our society forward. And, and, or you get the pair of jeans that you've always wanted or you get that bag and, or you get that car and as soon as you drive it off the lot, its literal value goes down and its worth is less from the moment you own it and drive it off the lot. That moment, it's now a used car. Or eventually you save up the American dream. What's, the American dream at some level has sold us the idea of owning a home. So the American dream is that one day you'll own and when you own a home, this is what happens. You get the home and the furniture that you had in your apartment doesn't fit it perfectly. So what's next is you save up to furnish the home that you barely could afford. In fact, you're in over your head with debt to own the home because you don't actually own it. The bank owns it. And I'll just tell you our cycle. So you get furniture to furnish this new home after spending lots of money to paint it and organize it. And then you get new, because what, ha what happens is you get a new rug and then the, the rug doesn't fully match the couch. You gotta get a new couch. And then the couch doesn't match the lamp. So you get the new lamp and the lamp doesn't match the picture. So you get a new picture. Does anyone else follow? Okay. Once you furnish it, then it's, it goes to the next thing, which is projects. I wanna redo the bathroom. So you, you save up money, you restore the bathroom, you get the new fixtures in, you get the new thing, and then it's eventually you save up for the kitchen. That's the big thing. You get the kitchen remodeled because eventually you have to remodel, gotta get the cabinets. And then after it's done, you're, you're over the house. It's not big enough for the family, so you have to buy a newer, bigger, better home. And the process starts over. And then eventually you get that down, the kids are older, and you look for a second home for vacationing. And then you get the second home and there, you need all the other things. It just keeps growing and growing and growing because at the end of the day, Whatever it is that you're trying to find satisfaction in, if it's consumable, it's not gonna provide satisfaction. And this is the cycle that we're in. So what do we do? What's next then? How as Christians do we redeem this cycle? How do we live as a redemptive presence? This is the question I've been wrestling with for, I guess this year, really, since I came back from India, and I shared a lot about it, but I wanna ask this question, and I wanna, I wanna, I wanna talk about some practical things at the end. So, um, but there was, this, there was this moment I had a couple of days, a couple, uh, last Saturday, 
went to the, the flower shop, Petals and Pops on, uh, in Seal Beach, to buy my wife some flowers for next to her bed as she was laying in bed for the past five weeks, as you know. But she did great this week. Thank you for your prayers. My wife was feeling much better this week. I felt like it was connected to all the prayer that I was receiving. Um, so I bought her some flowers, but in the flower shop, I'm standing in line, and there's this lady, an older lady in her 60s with um, sunglasses on, and she was bossing around the owner, and that's the best way I could describe it. The owner of the shop, the flower shop, who has two of these shops, who's very successful. She's bossing her around, trying to arrange the arrangement for her kitchen. I overheard this as she's literally throwing pieces off the arrangement and moving it like this. And, and she's kind of literally the energy in the room was just being sucked into this lady. And it was pretty, it was pretty crazy because stuff was being thrown on the ground. And it was just like, she's like, no, it's got to has to have more weight over here. It has to have this over here, this. And then she finally pauses when it's finished. And it's like, she made an observation about what just happened. She's like, I'm so sorry. And she said this, the cancer didn't kill me, but the kitchen remodel almost did. Something about, I think in what I was experiencing that moment, I don't know the story, but this is what I realized. There are things in life that we can't control. And what happens in our life when those things take on and the chaos takes over, we try to control the things in our life that we, we can control. And those things that we try to control in life eventually control us. And for her, it was the perfect kitchen. That's what she was using that piece for, the side of her kitchen where it came together like this. And so we know that these things have implications for our soul. So how do we find an alternative solution? At the garden, we believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. And that scripture is authoritative. And so this morning, I wanna just present to you um, a line of thinking that brought me to a discovery for an alternative lifestyle. That I'm just gonna share my story a little bit and the ways that my wife and I have moved in this direction. We're not perfect, but I wanna share some of that. So it's a little bit vulnerable, a little bit, a little bit practical at the end. But the, the first part is we're gonna start with scripture. Because I'm not gonna assume that everyone here takes the scripture as an authority for their life, okay? It is authoritative for the garden, as we, as we teach, it's authoritative for my life and it has value. So I actually believe Jesus meant what he said in the scriptures and that scripture reveals some of his teachings when he was alive on earth um, before he was murdered and then raised from the dead. So if you have a Bible, I'm just gonna take us through this uh, uh, line of thinking. We'll go to Luke chapter 18. You guys with me this morning? Luke 18, verse 18. Let's read this together. A certain ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now pause right there, because where your mind goes is to this, to this question, most likely. Uh, how do I go to heaven when I die? That is not what this person is asking Jesus. It was a very common question in the first century. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This was this question would have been asked by, by disciples to rabbis, by, by people to rabbis. They're wondering what in your teaching, in your way of, of, of communicating the Torah, the Old Testament, the law, the book of God, um, how do I live the life that is abundant and uh, God's blessed life? How do I experience that? It wasn't how do I get somewhere when I die? How do I enter into that way of life here and now? That's the question he's asking, okay? That's what eternal life is, even to Jesus' mind. Remember, the kingdom of God 
is not what happens when you die. It's crashing into earth right now, here and now. It's a reality to be experienced here and now. Heaven is coming into earth and there are pockets, there are moments in our life where we experience this. God teaches us, Jesus teaches us to pray God's kingdom into reality. Um, so this is, this is the dominant message of Jesus, that God's kingdom is present and well and alive. It's here. It's a reality to be experienced. It's his rule and reign of heaven. So this man's asking him, how do I experience it? And Jesus says this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. The man says, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. He said, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, you will experience eternal life here and now. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who are rich to experience the meaningful life, eternal life here and now that God intended us to live in the first place with. How hard it is for them to enter that life here and now. Why? This is the question I had. Why is it so hard for the rich? Why would it be so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says this to this rich man. Why would it be so hard? Well, go to Mark chapter four. So this is my process. I was just, okay, Lord, I wanna know why it's so hard. Why would you say this? Jesus, because they're asking, then who can be saved? Who's gonna be saved if it's hard? That has something to do with the first century perspective, which we'll talk about. But in Mark four, Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. It's a classic parable. It's the parable of the sower, the farmer who sows seeds into four different soils. And what you need to know about the parable is it's not that you as a person are one soil for the rest of your life. It's that any given moment in your life, the kingdom of God, so the, the farmer is sowing seed all the time. And at every single time in your life, you could be a different soil depending on where you are in that life, where you are in the moment. Right now as I preach, you could be, one of these four soils, that's what Jesus is saying. My job is simply to preach. I don't know what this, the word of God's gonna do in your life, but Jesus says, hey, there's a four, there are four possibilities. Here's, and after he tells the parable, he explains it to, to his disciples. So I'm just gonna read the explanation. So verse 14 of Mark 4. Remember, we're asking the question, why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The farmer sows the word. So the seed is the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away and the word that was sown, uh, takes away the word that was sown in them. So 
In other words, seeds planted, nothing happens. The enemy just comes in, distracts it, takes it away. Second, others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. They receive the word of God. Oh God, you're doing something amazing in my life. But since they have no root, no foundation, they don't, they don't know how to water it. They don't know how, how to allow the word to settle into their soul. Soul. Um, they, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. They, what, what could that be? They, walk to, they go to school on Monday and they're faced with um, some type of decision to make to remain faithful to the word or not. And they just, oh, it's easier to go this way with peer pressure. Do you see how you could be that soil at any given time? Do you see it? The third one. Still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Why is it so hard for the rich? Well, Jesus says, well, when the word of God is sown, when the kingdom of life comes crashing into their life, what happens is the worries of life come to their mind and life. The deceitfulness of wealth begins to distract them and the desires for other things comes into their life to choke the word out. God's life bursting forth in their life, it chokes it and they become unfruitful. And the fourth soil is the miraculous soil. Others like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop some 30, 60 some hundred times what was sown. So the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things come in and choke the word of God, making it unfruitful. So in other words, the rich people, uh, people that are rich have more stuff, more wealth, more, um, more worries because when you have more things, you have to take care of those things. There's more costs associated to it. Can any of us relate to these things? Can we see how that might, that might cause us to drift our focus and intentionality? Um, you become, the rich can become distracted by their things. Or as Biggie Small says, more money, more problems. <laughs> and this is what Jesus is saying. <laughs> you want to take a picture of that? Just so, because he's just, he's prophetically calling out what Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago. <laughs> now, his problems are a little different than what I'm talking about. So, so more money, more problems. Where, so, the rich. So, what, what's going on in the story? So, this wealthy man comes to Jesus, and the question is real. How do I experience this life that is really life? And in the first century, to have physical possessions, to be wealthy, was to be seen blessed by God. It was a sign of God's, God's life in your life. It was a sign of blessing and prosperity, of God's abundance. And Jesus confronts it. Jesus confronts it. And what he says to the guy is he lists a bunch of the, the laws that are associated to man. Now, there are, there are 10 commandments, three that have to do with God. There's one about the Sabbath. Um, that's four. And then there are six others that have to do with the way you interact in the world. Jesus leaves out one of those specific commands. Thou shall not covet. You shall not covet. So Jesus, the guy says, look, since I was a kid, I have followed everything you have said. And then Jesus says, well, you're missing one. Covet. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Is this not the American church? Where, where we, we literally, we, well, if it's sin issues, yeah, we're good here. We're good on, on our sex or sexuality. That's the real issue. 
alcohol, you know, drunkenness is the real issue. I give a little bit of money to the church. I come to church regularly. I don't know how you do it, but what we tend to do is say, I've got all of these down. And then Jesus kind of says, hey, um, you're, you're, you're kind of coveting. Or, or you, I've got all these things down. And then he just comes to us and he's like, yeah, but you're not married yet. And the way you're interacting with your, your girlfriend is not appropriate for followers of Jesus. He comes and just identifies the heart issue, the, the heart issue the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the life that is really life. Because for this guy, it was an idol. And so he says to the guy, look, sell everything, give to the poor, and then you can come follow me. Now, does that seem pretty harsh? Does that seem harsh? It seems harsh, right? Yes or no? Yeah, that seems harsh. We're a little rough. What's this, Grace, what's up with the, or Jesus, what's up with all this grace? You know, like, give me some more of that. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But then he says to this guy, sell everything and give to the poor. But he's rich. He's the rich dude. Um, Well, he'll say, hey, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you don't hate your brother and sister, mother and father, you're not worthy of me. If, if you don't count the cost, you can't really be my disciple. And then he calls Andrew and James and John and Peter in, in Mark chapter one. And these are fishermen in boats. And he says, come follow me. And it says that they get out of the boats, they drop their nets, and then they follow Jesus. Now that's just a little thing for fishermen, but the nets and the boats, they, they represent vocation, financial wealth. They represent uh, their family uh, inheritance. They represent their comfort, their security, and their identity. Matthew, the tax collector, leaves the tax booth and follows Jesus. These are stories of what it means to follow Jesus. But, but we put this one in a category and we, oh, he doesn't really mean it. Let's just spiritualize this. Or even worse, let's just talk about this. Well, well, that was a rich man. I'm not rich. We're talking about Warren Buffett. We're talking about Donald Trump. We're talking about, maybe not Donald, but we're talking about... Um, We're talking about Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. Those people are rich. Now, in Jesus' day, 90% of of first century Palestine was poor, were poor, and 10% were wealthy. So there's a massive divide. We're talking about the rich in first century. This is a unique case. Well, Well, let me just give you perspective then. This is what God did to me. So I was like, okay, so if if it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom, why is it harder? Okay, it has to do with, this deceitfulness of wealth, being distracted. God calls his followers to leave the stuff behind, to be defined by, um, by Jesus. Well, then what? What do we, what, well, then who's rich? He's a rich guy. Who's rich? Well, let me just give his perspective, not for the sake of, cons- uh, of shame, for the sake of perspective. Here's some thoughts. If you think, okay, he's talking about Bill Gates. Well, who's rich today? Um, the first one. If you, your income is over 25000 a year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. So if you make $12 an hour and work 40 hours a week, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people in, globally. Is that helpful? Okay, if you make $50,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. 
If you drove here in a car, you're in the 93% of the world doesn't own a car. You're in the top 7% of the world's wealthy. Now, just a couple of thoughts. 40% of the world lacks basic sanitation. 1 billion of the world doesn't have access to clean water. 800 million will not eat today. Three of that, 800 million, 300 million are kids. Okay, again, this is about who's rich. 2 billion, 2 billion do not have electricity. If you own a computer, you are 1% of the world. 1% of the world owns a computer. 1% of the world has a college education. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I am the rich young, young ruler. If any of those apply to you, 40%, go back to the last, last page for me. Um, do you mind? Uh, or you don't have to go there. But $25,000 uh, $25, annually. 25, top 10%. So we'll just start there. If you make more than $25,000 annually, you're in the top 10%. Do you see how if you just take Jesus' words, this could be a crisis? Anyone else? I'll just speak for myself. This is what I wrestled with. How do I authentically live out this message when I am the rich young ruler? Do I have to sell everything and give to the poor? I don't know, maybe. I don't think that's the journey that I'm calling anyone to. I don't think that's the journey I'm on. I'm just wrestling with the text internally. And then Matthew 6, he says this, look, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he skips to verse 24 and says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Where is your heart? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Will. And then you can't serve both God and money. I have no other way of leading this church other than to talk about the things that the word of God is doing inside of me. And I hope all pastors and preachers live this way. That they just wrestle with the text. That as Christians, we wrestle with what's, what God's doing inside of me. So I, how do we respond to this word? Because the question we're trying to answer is how do we become and live as a redemptive presence in a culture and society built on consumerism. And consumerism has sold us the lie that you are not enough. And our deepest desires is to feel that we are enough, that we're worthy, that we're whole, that we experience happiness and joy. And the lie has created a cycle that many of us have become enslaved to that's created a, 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 a crazy amount of debt in our life. And Jesus' te Jesus's teachings on this are clear. We can't let anything distract us from our discipleship to Jesus. We should be utterly devoted to Christ because we can't serve God in money. It's harder for the rich because we're gonna be distracted. Most of us are the rich. So if you're like me and you're thinking, okay, Darren, I've heard this message, what do I do? I wanna just share now what I think a proper response is for the American lifestyle. If you wanna change, if you're here, I'm not trying to sell you on this. I'm just trying to invite you into a more meaningful life in Christ. And if you're here and you're thinking, okay, Darren, I wanna change. What do I do? How do I move forward? Um, I wanna share some of my, the steps that my wife and I have taken on this journey. First of all, to change takes all sorts of things. It, you need new thinking, 
You need new longings in your heart and you need, need new behaviors and, and disciplines. You need new narratives to live by and you need new ways of, of living out your faith. So, so with that, I wanna just share some ideas. First of all, the key to pursuing a different life is first awareness. You need to have awareness of what is going on in your life. When you become aware of who you are becoming unintentionally by habits and patterns and values in your life, um, you have to pause and say, okay, this is not the route I wanna go. So awareness will bring light to the change needed while taking on new habits will empower transformation. So um, with that, let me just give you some, some stuff my wife and I did. We, my wife and I decided we wanted to ruthlessly eliminate the constant pursuit and need for more by intentionally pursuing less. So I wanna introduce a spiritual discipline um, of simplicity today, but I'm gonna call it minimalism. I think the antidote to the American consumer lifestyle is intentionally pursuing less. It's to no longer be defined by what you consume, but to be defined by what Jesus says about you and actually what is eternal life. And I think the kingdom has all sorts of values that are, are, along, that, uh, that are shaped by it. So what I've learned over the last several years, uh, the last year, my wife and I have pursued this, is just um, leading a life towards simplicity and minimalism. So here are some things. Are you guys okay with this? Is this relevant to what you're experiencing right now? Do you feel like, okay, this might be good? I can't really read you. You're very quiet. Thank you. Okay. So minimalism, what is minimalism? (laughs) I appreciate the positive feedback. Minimalism is a lifestyle that helps people question what things add value to their lives. By clearing the clutter from life's path, we can all make room for the most important aspects of life. Jesus, health, relationships, passion, growth, and generosity. So what I've recognized is the lie of, of our consumer culture is to consume more and you'll be happy. But what I've seen take place is actually by, by rejecting that lie and going the other way, intentionally pursuing less, it's actually brought more satisfaction than consuming more in my own life and my wife and I. Um, so go to that definition real quick, minimalism. So what, what I've seen happen is by clearing clutter, by elimination, um, what what's created is space for Jesus, for relationships, for our physical health, for rest, for generosity, passion, growth, and creativity. Um, this is, I have, I have physical evidence over the last eight years, or eight months, excuse me, since February. How many months is that? Yeah, we'll go eight or nine. Okay, go to the next slide. So here's what I've done. This is what my wife and I, and I wanna invite you to think about this. The first thing that Alex and I had to do was reevaluate our priorities and values. We began to ask the question, is our lifestyle pointing people to the resurrection of Jesus? And what areas of our life are not pointing to Jesus? So we just started evaluating. And there there were a huge list of areas that were not pointing to Jesus in how we interacted, in our hurriedness, our busyness, our exhaustion, our spending, our consuming, our clothes, um, all sorts of things. So I, I said, okay, God, I literally, we wrote down values as a family and individually. I said, I, for me personally, number one goal, priority, to be a passionate follower of Jesus. Second, to be a loving husband. Third, to be a loving and an amazingly present father. Th- third, under that was to be an amaz- uh, a loving friend, then a loving pastor, and then it was to be like um, compassionate, generous. I just listed these things out and to define life by meaningful relationships. So I wrote these things down, wrote values like compassion and generosity and adventure and obedience. We wrote those down. Okay, this is the direction. This is who we want to become. This is what God's kingdom invites us into. And then we just said, let's now, let's declutter and eliminate anything that distracts us from that. 
So that's what we did. We decluttered and eliminated all the, all the things that distracted those values in our life. So um, we, we began by, ask, I started reading all these books, but one of the, the most helpful questions you could ask yourself if you want to begin this process is when you're thinking about buying something or the things that you own, whether or not they, um, you, should, you should get rid of it or not, is does this item spark joy in my life? Do I love it? Does it align with my values? Does it spark joy? Because what we tend to do is just buy something that we, not, we, not, we don't necessarily love it. It doesn't spark joy. It's just filling a void in that moment. And then we collect these items and we just keep them because we don't want to get rid of them because somehow they've identified something inside of us. So what this journey did, so we started reevaluating our priorities. We started asking meaningful questions. The first thing I did is I went to my wardrobe. And this is what I'm going to invite you to do. I, I have received so much identity by what I look like. I was radically insecure growing up. almost committed suicide I was, uh, uh, because of self-image issues. And so for me, the, the, the way I defined joy was what other people thought of me. And the easiest way to do that was to look a certain way. That projected an image to people. And so what I first did is God just said, hey, you want to follow me? Go to your closet. So I have eliminated, I think, 85% of what I own in my closet. I, 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 I just start, started saying, I want to love it. And I'm not going to buy things um, because I, I want them. I'm going to buy them because I need them. And I now have, I think it's like, there, there's not a number on this. By the way, minimalism is a moving target for everyone. It's not like you can get to this place and you're more minimal. It's, it's going to look different for your family of four than it does for a college student or someone that owns a house. This, is this practical stuff helpful? So this is what I did. I, I, I have less than 40 items now of clothing from jackets to shirts to dress-up shirts to shoes to pants, not including underwear, workout stuff, and pajamas. But 40 items. Why? Because I no longer want to be defined by what I look like. I, want, I no longer want to be defined by what people think of how I dress. And so I, I got rid of dozens of shoes that I love that were valuable to me for the sake of discovering what was on the other side of not being defined by my wardrobe. You know what's on the other side? Peace. Freedom, more headspace, because I don't think about what I'm going to wear because I don't have much to wear. <laughs> it's amazing. It's honestly, it's absolutely freeing and incredible. I'm not, I'm not, and you know that what happens is like you want a new pair of shoes. So it starts by the desire, and then you, then you notice everyone's shoes. Or you want a car, and you notice everyone has the car that you want. It's the same color, the same. And what happens is you, you, become, a, you become aware, and you pay attention. You spend energy on those things. So it started with the wardrobe. It's brought me freedom, joy, peace, free, a headspace. It's also brought a level of simplicity in my life that is so needed because there's so many questions I have. There's so much responsibility that I carry. That's just one less thing. So practically, all that's helpful. It moved into our home. And this is probably the hardest thing because we just started getting rid of stuff, stuff that didn't spark joy. We had d decorations on the wall because we needed a spot for decorations. We just created space in our home. Now, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just sharing my journey. This is the part I've been walking. And um, the, the most amazing thing that's happened, I would say, is my wife. Because um, there's, this, there's this desire uh, to make things beautiful and creative. And, and I think that's God-given. When we moved into our house, she wanted to redo the bathroom. So she started saving for that. She, she started planning for that. She learned, she was sending me YouTube videos on how to 
demo and retile your bathroom floor, which is so good for her, um, not for me. Um, but we, we had all the money and we, we set it aside. It took us like a year, like nine months to save up for what we were doing. It wasn't gonna be tremendously expensive. It was just new fixtures, new tile, blah, blah, blah. But in the process of minimalism, we realized it didn't align with our values. That would mean time away from our son and each other. That would mean Sabbath would be invaded by home projects, which means if you're doing home projects, you are not Sabbathing. Now, I'm not legalistic. We're not applying the law. It doesn't apply to you, but I, I need for my soul, I need a full day, 24 hours off, no chores, no work, no emails, none of that. So for my wife, what happened is she released, and she, it was a, uh, for her, she desired more to be at home, present, rested, um, to not worry about the work or even the implications of bigger, better, newer. Um, it, it focused her in on, on the things that mattered most in her life. And that, that's the greatest thing about this is that your desires shift. And all of a sudden it's like, it doesn't matter. We'd rather have that look the way it does than spend the energy and resources. And that empowered greater generosity. So we went through our home, went through bedrooms, we got rid of all sorts of stuff. Then it moved to our digital life. Um, Our digital life was probably the hardest. We got rid of a TV a long time ago, up until recently when she's been bedridden. Somebody let us borrow their TV. We haven't had a TV in our home for over two years. And it's amazing because of what it creates. It's not the center of our house. The center of our house is a table um, and, and communicate, it's friendships. And, and so for us, it was TV and then it was um, no emails on the phone. I dare you to try to go like an hour without your phone. Try an hour without your phone. Just leave it somewhere off. Uh, we started shutting off our phones for Sabbath. We uh, eliminated the use of social media all the time. We're still on it. Um, just all sorts of disciplines and, and it just kept going and invaded every area of our life. It moved to our schedule, into our time, uh, rules about Sabbath, rules about being home, rules about shutting. We just realized like the stuff that's come out of this has been so helpful. And then it also moved into diet. I'm gonna share this with you um, and something that's been an amazing gift. At the same time of starting minimalism, I kept asking the Lord, what's, what could I, what's getting in the way of my discipleship? And he said, drinking, alcohol. Never got drunk, always drank alcohol in moderation. Um, but I felt like God was saying that for maybe two years. And finally, I, I gave it up. And it's been almost eight months of not drinking alcohol. And um, this fast has been the most liberating experience in my life. Because it's showed me ways that I use all sorts of food to comfort my emotions to distract me from what I really feel in moments and all the ways that I connect with friends over some type of beverage or food um, in ways that could be destructive. It wasn't ever destructive for me, but it's led me to see life the way it is. It's led into a certain diet. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm just spitting out all these things, but I wanna show you where this discipline leads it, because we're coming into Thanksgiving we're coming into the Christmas holiday. We're coming into the consumer time of year. Um, and I want to just invite you to experience contentment, greater joy, greater intimacy, greater presence with people, greater love, um, greater freedom, um, greater gratitude. All of these things that I'm listing that feel like practices that are going to be hard and disciplines, they're not for you to just go and run with. Ask Jesus if you're invited into this discipline. And begin to experiment. Maybe it's just once a week you're doing something. Maybe it's getting rid of one thing in your life that's been a distraction. But the point of this is to actually challenge the, the culture 
that says you aren't enough. That's the point. And you know what? Genesis 1 begins with God creating everything. And he says, it's very good. The deepest thing within you, the thing that has been spoken over you from the beginning of time is actually you are enough. You are whole, you are true, and you, as human, are good. And Jesus comes into our life, and what does he do? He takes all that's bad and wipes it away, and he tries to remind us of what has been ultimately true about every human, that they are made in the image of God, and they are good enough, just as they are. So if you want more life, eternal life, Maybe some of you have to sell everything and give to the poor. Maybe it's just becoming aware of all the ways you're distracting your lifestyle for Jesus in this lifestyle of consumerism. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.